Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, December 10th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, asking you please to consider commentary in your end of year giving. We are a nonprofit 501c3 organization, and we depend on the generosity of our readers and our listeners to cover the deficit. If the deficit is covered, we can continue doing what we are doing, including producing this podcast, producing our magazine, producing our website. If we don't cover the deficit, we got to cut back and cutting back means cutting back on all of those things. And we don't want to do that. And you, if you are a subscriber, I thank you very, very much for your, for your custom. Um, I ask now for your Ellen Mossonary generosity, please go to commentary.org slash donate uh, fully tax deductible donation to our institution will allow us to thrive and prosper. And by us, I mean, my, my partners in crime here, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. We are putting the finishing touches on our January issue, which will be online or mostly online on Monday. Superstar of the issue is Christine Rosen, who not only has a column on the disinformation problem as defined by uh, liberals in her media column, but also our cover story called The New Misogyny, um, which we will talk more about next week and which is a sort of landmark piece in my view uh, about the nature of how our discussions of gender fluidity and uh, and the like um, are actually aimed uh, directly at the heart of what it means to be a woman. So please keep your eye on that, on many other subjects. I actually have a piece in that issue on Stephen Sondheim and his role in American culture. Eli Lake has a piece on those who are bitterly clinging to Russiagate, despite the exposure of the falsity uh, and con job that is the Steele dossier and many, many, many other fascinating pieces. So that will be the January commentary available on Monday. And that is why we ask you to subscribe to not only to subscribe, which I'm asking you to do, you should be doing that already, subscribing to us, but also to consider us in your end of your giving, www.commentary.org slash donate. There is so much to talk about. I don't even know where to begin. We apparently are about to hear that the inflation rate the annual inflation rate is almost 7%. I mean, we've been building up to this, but we are now talking about a CPI of astonishing proportions, a number we haven't seen in many, many decades. We have Jesse Smollett being convicted out of uh, five of the six charges that he manufactured a hate crime for the purpose of getting himself attention and publicity and maybe upping his contract with the show Empire and the amount of money that he gets, he was going to get from the show Empire on which he was a cast member on Fox. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's so much uh, going on. Uh, where do we want to start? I, I just want to say that Jesse Smollett, maybe we should start there because uh, it's sort of fun to talk about how he invented a crime. You know, they he didn't get away with it, uh, you know, and he's getting nailed and all these people said, oh, it's so terrible what happened to Jesse Smollett. And then the, the con sort of came clear a couple of years ago and he 
for reasons that are completely elusive, thought he could somehow talk his way out of it and now has been nailed. And so we get another one of these, aha, you see liberals have been hoist by their own petard and he's a crazy person. But let's actually talk about what he did. What he did in the middle of the worst uh, you know, racial and social strife um, in a generation, he manufactured a hate crime as a, as a significant public figure in pop culture uh, for the purpose of, of, um, of helping himself, but that was only going to contribute to the, uh, to the harsh and difficult and repulsive uh, racial politics in the United States, which he attempted to turn to his own positive devices. Um, this was a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do to this country. Uh, not just that he, you know, instilled nonsense blather from idiot liberals who believed every word that he said when it was clear from five minutes into it that this was a sham. Since who goes out in 10 degree below zero weather at two o'clock in the morning to walk to a Walgreens to get eggs and then is somehow accosted by white people who just happen to be carrying a noose. I mean, seriously, like the smell test. Does anybody have a bullshit detector? Like it was... So, but it's not just that. It is that it is that this was this was the sort of thing that was designed to inflame racial tensions to make the country worse for his own personal gain. And you still have people kind of defending him a little bit. Anyway. Not a that, not just a little bit, because this is the part that I think exposes to, to this broader point. I agree. It's it's very it's kind of uh, delicious to see just how uh, ridiculous the support for him was. And all those people, of course, have fallen silent, including our president and vice president um, who, who handily support him. It's actually a good sign that Americans, when something like this was alleged to occur, were horrified because if it was real, it would be horrifying. So I don't mind the reaction having been that extreme. I do mind that, uh, you know, he sat down and turned himself into this, this, you know, professional martyr. You know, he went and talked to, I think it was Good Morning America. He's like, the reason they came after me is that I've, I've just come really hard against Trump. And they just they clearly had their targets on me. I mean, the the narcissism was insane, but it was the defense on Wednesday. So this is, you know, after after he's been charged during the trial, when he's exposed to have lied relentlessly about his behavior, Black Lives Matter issued a statement saying he was innocent and that this was proof of the systemic uh, racism of the system. That right there for me is the takeaway moment of this um, and uh, the exposure of a kind of grift that that a lot of us have been pointing to for over a year, but it was made very clear by that statement. That's one line um, of, of uh, defense for him. There's another line that we're seeing um, on the left. It's not exactly defending him, um, but it is uh, about their disappointment with the, the jury's conclusion, nevertheless. So we saw this, we saw some of this in the in the Kyle Rittenhouse case too. It's not necessarily that justice hasn't been done here. The problem is that what we needed was not necessarily justice to have been done. We needed a political message to have been sent. And if 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 Jesse Smollett is found guilty, we get the wrong political message sent because now that and uh Apparently not his hoax, but but that that ruling uh, now makes it more dangerous and harder for people to come forward with actual hate crimes. This is a message that resonates with absolutely no Americans who live in the real world. This is this is purely uh, 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 sort of elite 
liberal nonsense. This is the ultimate problem. This is where this dovetails with the story about the crime wave, the murder wave that has hit the United States over the last two years. We have 10 cities, Philadelphia being the largest, but major American cities, Philadelphia, Baltimore, others, where we have murder rates that are higher than at the than in than in during the crack epidemic. We have a doubling of the number of murders in Philadelphia every year for the last two years over the previous five years. What does Philadelphia have in common with other places like this? It has a prosecutor, a DA, who does not want to prosecute crimes. Why does all of this matter? It matters because crime is not symbolic. And liberals want to treat crime as though it is symbolic, as though it is about something else, right? Crime is about injustice. Crime is about inequality. Crime is about a lack of opportunity. Crime is about one person doing something to another person. That is what crime is. An individual using some form of illegal attempt to take advantage of another person to injure that other person, either physically, sometimes mentally, sometimes economically. That is what crime is. It is a crime of an individual or sometimes a group of individuals against an individual or sometimes a group of individuals. And it has to be judged on its own merits, its own lights. That's why it has Every crime has an evidentiary standard. We don't. We believe that the person who is accused of the crime is innocent until proven guilty, for example, because there needs to be an evidentiary standard. You can't just be accused of having committed a crime or you can't just claim to have been the victim of a crime and have it accepted without question. There needs to be proof. This needs to go through a process in which a grand jury indicts a judge or a jury hears evidence pro and con, an argument is made, 12 people go into a room and determine unanimously that the crime was committed by the person in question who is then punished, right? That is because it is an individual act and every effort to abstract it. That is what the entire progressive prosecutor project is about and is what liberal criminology is about. Don't think about the individual at the center of the crime, either the perpetrator or the victim. Think about them as chess pieces or players on a board, and the board is America, and it's all a question of who's moving in what way. Nobody has agency, nobody has feelings, nobody has nothing. And we are engaged in a gigantic experiment in which there was a flip for 30 years in which we actually privileged the victim and believed that the victim was the problem in the crime and not the perpetrator. And some point in the last seven or eight years, we started believing that we needed to pay account and pay attention and feel sorry for the potential perpetrators of crime rather than the people whom they were criminalizing. And the net result has been a wild increase in crime. And as Christine has always eager to point out, crimes against the very people whom the liberal criminologists or who the liberal criminologists claim they are trying to save, poor members of minority communities who are being somehow aggressed against by the larger society. That is why the Jussie Smollett matter matters. It doesn't just matter because he was a TV star who, who, who ran a con against his network to get more money. 
it was a, an object lesson in seeing how the common culture reacts to a patently false effort to use crime as a weapon and how and how and how this was seen there, there's also the other problem with the with the uh, progressive prosecutor progressive criminologist um, uh, uh, efforts to talk about the system and systemic issues versus the individual crime and the individual victim is that it, it there's a horrible feedback loop where people in the most vulnerable communities if they believe it or if the if law enforcement withdraws as a result of the kind of you know negative uh, uh, interpretation of of their job that that society embraces as as it has in the last few years, they stop trusting the system too. So if you think about it, if crime occurs more often in their in their neighborhoods, and the cops knock on the door and say, "Do you know who did this?" If they know it, but they mistrust law enforcement, they're less likely to speak to law enforcement, and as a result, they remain at, at higher risk because the people perpetrating this in these neighborhoods is a very small percentage of the people who live there, and yet they can they, they terrorize entire swaths of people because those people are too afraid. To do that, the other thing they do is they take matters into their own hands if they don't trust law enforcement. If they don't believe law enforcement has uh, them, it, it is willing to protect them. That's why they walk around carrying guns. They live in fear of their own lives, and as a result, a lot of these conflicts uh, escalate to the point where you know people are murdered. Christine I want to read. To, oh, so go brought ahead. up <clears throat> uh, the the notion of systemic problems, <clears throat> which I think applies broadly to just about every aspect of society. And, and in the last 10 years or so, a, a mark of arid, of somebody's uh, sophistication and um, education uh, is to view all, all of life and, and, uh, and existence and sort of apply a framework to it, um, which is where you get the systemic problems from and you apply it to, to crime and obesity and uh, violence and drug abuse and half a dozen other issues that have broader societal implications and you flatten them and reduce them not from one discrete act by an individual who is making a, per a choice that you can judge on its merits and broaden it out to a, a societal issue that makes the individual less relevant to the story. And that's perceived to be a mark of erudition, a mark of somebody who's a, a serious person who's done their homework and understands the complexities of their environment when it's precisely the opposite. It's actually making you uh, much less cognizant, aware of, and uh, observant of the what you're actually talking about. You're not talking about the discrete act that prompted this conversation. It's just the news hook that allows you to to launch into your pseudo-academic diatribe about whatever your personal hobby horse is. And this is applied across the, the spectrum of American uh, social uh, social problems. Uh, and it's increasing, it's it's people who think they're they're you know doing a, a good a good service to society and a dialogue encourage this sort of thing when it's actually making it much harder to talk about the issues that affect um, your day-to-day -day life. I want to give a shout out here to Michael Nutter, the former mayor of Philadelphia, who published an op-ed yesterday in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and here's how it begins. District Attorney Larry Krasner, that's the uh, politically progressive prosecutor uh, in Philadelphia. His recent remarks about whether we are experiencing a crime crisis are some of the worst, most ignorant, and most insulting comments I have ever heard spoken by an elected official. At a Monday press briefing, Krasner told reporters, quote, we don't have a crisis of lawlessness. We don't have a crisis of crime. We don't have a crisis of violence. 
This is Nutter. It takes a certain audacity of ignorance and white privilege to say that right now, as a Monday night, 521 people's souls, spirits have been vanquished, eliminated, murdered in our city of brotherly love and sisterly affection the most since 1960. I have to wonder what kind of messed up world of white wokeness Krasner is living in to have so little regard for human lives lost, many of them black and brown, while he advances his own national profile as a progressive district attorney. I'd like to ask Krasner how many more black and brown people and others would have to be gunned down in our streets daily to meet your definition of a crisis? How many more children and teens have to die in record numbers to capture your attention and be considered a crisis? How many more moms, dads, spouses, and friends need to shed tears over the loss of a loved one for you to call it a crisis? Words matter. Words impact and trigger and hurt. Words mean something from elected officials. Krasner should publicly apologize to the 521 families of dead victims and the thousands of those maimed by gun wounds this year. He has ignored the pain of the living and insulted the memory of the dead. Krasner should also use his words to send a message to the shooters, murderers, and criminals of this city by committing to actually prosecute them rather than coddle them, make excuses, reduce or drop charges. He should commit to locking them up for carrying illegal weapons or shooting people. This is a liberal Democrat, Michael Nutter. He is now a professor of criminology and public policy at Columbia University. This is no joke. Like he is not a, you know, he's he's not he's not Rudy Giuliani or, you know, uh, Alan West. Um uh he his his tenure was full of community policing efforts and harm reduction efforts and all kinds of things that are beloved to sort of, you know, to an earlier generation of liberal criminologists who had not yet gone down this road of saying that that which is crime should no longer be considered crime. That's an amazing piece. That guy was the was eight years the mayor of Philadelphia, going directly at the jugular of a frankly unimaginably repulsive statement from the person who is he's not the chief law enforcement officer of Philadelphia, but he is the chief prosecutor of Philadelphia with the discretion to pick and choose which what crimes he actually uh, is willing to prosecute and which ones he isn't. And um, we need to see this. Like we need Michael Nutters to start coming out and 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 doing something about the evil on their own side. Like we can scream from the rooftops about this, uh, but you know, a city of like Philadelphia is not going to go. You know, is not going to change party control anytime soon. And that that fight needs to take place within the democratic and liberal precincts, not with us standing on the outside screaming ourselves hoarse and being unable to be heard. Abe, sorry. And I love the frank language he uses. There is no more um, sort of pretending that this isn't about, as he says, white wokeness. Um, this is something we wouldn't have heard last year uh, amid all these efforts and all this complaining and all this, oh, so much worry about black communities being murdered at the hands of police. It is now being identified overtly for what it is. Um, and, and I think that is a tremendous step forward. It's an individual case, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. And we have other examples of it. We have the pro politically progressive district attorney of L.A. firing really unpleasant shots at the sheriff of L.A. County. We have, you know, we have, of course, our favorite progressive D.A., uh, Chesa Boudin, uh, son of terrorists and, and stepson of terrorists, 
you know, um, standing mute, watching as his city as his city literally turns into a a kind of public cesspool. I don't know how else to describe it with the idea that nothing really should be done. It's very generous to assume that this is a response to, you know, changing conditions on the ground that have become intolerable. But it's more likely just a the fact that political analysis has focused the minds of people who suddenly realize that their silence over the course of the last 18 months in the face of these changing conditions has become politically untenable and that they're staring down the barrel of very tangible and unacceptable political consequences. I'd I'd love for it to have been some sort of a revelation that, wow, actually people don't love crime, but it's much more likely a response to polling. Yeah, but Michael Nutter himself isn't running for office he is retired uh you know he's teaching maybe he'll run for office again i don't know but that was not what impelled him you mentioned half a dozen other examples <laughs> or you were about to one example but you're there's half a dozen you could cite all of which are people who have their hats in the arenas and they're they're seen to their immediate political interests rather than the interests of their constituents i wish it were different but i that's I'm much more cynical but, about it but that's fine because the reason that that they're now seeing their former position as a liability is because there has been a, a, a some sort of sense of revelation among uh, American citizens, among voters. So, so it's so if if it, it's if that that's just the sort of the the you know the end result. Well, and in the blue cities in particular, I've I've witnessed this cycle uh, personally among among people who are trying to rationalize what's been happening on the ground uh, and clear on the ground for some time. And it's first it was, oh, that's an overreaction. Um, you know, the it's not that bad. And then it was, well, it's not as bad as it was 30 years ago. It's not like at the height of the crack epidemic. I hear that a lot around here in D.C., even though we're inching close to reaching that goal and other cities have already surpassed it. Now it's it's coming into their neighborhoods. It's coming into neighborhoods where that kind of violent crime was not uh, typical. It was rare. It was extremely rare in some cases. And now it's becoming commonplace. And suddenly they're waking up and going, oh, wait, my kid's private school was on lockdown twice in DC last week because of armed carjackings right in front of the school. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe this is bad. Maybe our mayor doesn't have a handle on this and our and our and our antipathy for the for the police is is misguided. So they're getting there, but it really has to get to the point where they feel it personally and where they look at their officials and elected leaders who are I mean, Chicago, same thing. Lori Lightfoot isn't really addressing the the problem of violent crime in her city at all. So I think some of the leaders are doing this and reacting to it politically, as Noah says. Others are just going to keep bulldozing ahead and assume that they can rely on their voters to return them to office, even in the midst of this chaos. Look, in, in the 1970s, when the crime wave really began to hit everybody in the United States, suburbs, cities, wherever it was, like it was general and it was not consigned to minority neighborhoods and it was not just gang violence and stuff like that it was economic violence it was burglaries and muggings and carjackings and things like that um you know it still took the democrat and and the democratic party was then a much larger party that is to say there were twice as many democrats nationally as republicans in the 1970s and so they had a lot of different coalitions and a lot of different ethnicities and a lot of different people in the party and so you had a counter pressure inside the Democratic Party in, say, New York is the best example I know, but Chicago, too, and others, where you had uh, white ethnics who were like, you're killing me here and I don't have the money 
to do white flight. I can't afford to move to DuPage County in, in Chicago or to move to, you know, um, uh, Shaker Heights or to move to, out to the main line or something like that. I'm, I'm here and I'm staying here and that's what I got, or I'm staying in Brooklyn and they're killing me. And this new, this kind of message, this, this real world message from politicians like Ed Koch, politicians like Jane Byrne, who was not a very good mayor of Chicago, but sort of knew how to talk a little bit, the talk the talk to people, or 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 Richard Daly when he became mayor of Chicago, or whatever. There was a kind of bifurcated world in which Democratic politicians talked about crime locally very well. Nationally, the Democratic Party took twenty years to recover from its descent into liberal theory about the root causes of crime. It was not until Bill Clinton went home to Arkansas to put a mentally deficient man on death row to, to make sure that he was executed, Ricky Ray Rector was his name, so mentally impaired that at his last meal, he put aside his piece of pie to eat for later. Clinton nonetheless insisted on basically being there to flip the switch because he wanted to make a point that this was not your mother's Democratic Party anymore. He was a tough ass and he wasn't going to sit stand for any more of this nonsense from Democrats. And it made a very, very serious difference um, in, in, in that regard. Uh, and the Democratic Party is now doesn't have that countervailing pressure of a larger coalition inside it, at least in the cities. It's very much sort of uh, racinated and 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 managed by large larger populations who whose political leaders believe in this nonsense, and we'll see what happens. Well, and because, who? At, at, sorry, just to, just back to yeah. Smollett for a minute. The other person who's really complicit in how this whole case uh, uh, happened was is Kim Fox, the prosecutor. Like she she actually actively tried to cover up his criminal act of false accusation until it became clear she couldn't do that anymore. So it's not just that we have the, 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 you know, the mayors of these cities, you know, kind of buying into this crap. You have lots of DAs, lots of prosecutors. And that's the point at which I think from the victim's perspective, you, they used to always be able to assume that they could go to the DA and be like, I was the victim. I need justice. And they would get justice. Now you go and you that they look at justice as Kim Fox did, which is, well, it is uh, America is an unjust place for him for a black gay man like Jesse Smollett. So let's make sure he has justice, which means even if he lied about this, we're going to make sure he's not prosecuted for it. That's well, well, their Fo version. Yeah. And Kim Fox was deeply influenced by the fact that Jesse Smollett hired as PR consultants, members of the Clinton machine didn't hire, you know, members of the Black Panthers, like hired members of the Clinton machine who went on the, uh, you know, on, uh, on background and said, Oh, you gotta leave him alone. You gotta let him be. You gotta... And then, so a special prosecutor had to be appointed to look into Jesse Smollett while the police chief, the African-American police chief of the city was saying he cost us millions of dollars. We spent weeks trying to find this, these two guys with the white guys with a noose. Like, this is no joke. These are opportunity costs. We don't have the personnel despair during a crime spree to try to help Jussie Smollett with his stupid negotiations over how much screen time he gets on his stupid show. 
I mean, that's and 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 trying to use current political correctness to his own advantage. And so it wasn't just that, you know, Kim Fox has bad politics. It was that the entire Democratic political establishment, as evinced by all the quotes of, you know, of heartrending, you know, sympathy for Jesse Smollett, shows that were implicated in in believing him and making making it necessary for his crime to be given uh, his supposed crime against him to be given added weight extra attention more attention than say an event at 46th and cottage grove where you know where where two people shoot each other well that is the real systemic problem right that a culture would incentivize someone to make this sort of charge knowing that it would reach that the media would lap it up and and it would gain traction i mean exactly. that's a systemic issue exactly okay we're talking about stuff that's kind of like in the realm of good and evil and that's why i want to talk to you about david bonson's book there's no free lunch 250 economic truths david uh, our friend who runs the Bonson Group, that multi-billion dollar financial services and management company. Uh, this is a book about economic truths, but it's also a book about liberty, and it's also a book about faith. And it attempts in 250 separate chapters to summarize the best and wisest ideas, thoughts, opinions, and feelings about how the world really works, how economy, how the economy uh uh, interacts with human nature and with um, with faith traditions to, uh, at its best, encourage and promote human flourishing, which is really the purpose of all human activity, is to make it possible for people to flourish and make the most of their God-given gifts. So that is 250 Economic Truths. There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Go to Amazon. Barnes and Noble, wherever you get books. It's a great stocking stuffer. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N, David Bonson, the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and marketing industry. And uh, David, I'm sure, will be writing later today about the 7% year-over-year inflation rate. And basically, uh, let me just point out that as this is coming out today, there is a CNBC poll, uh, the worst yet for uh, Democrats um, on the generic ballot. Who would you like to control Congress? Uh, 10% gap in favor of Republicans 11 months before the election. Here's the one thing we know about this generic ballot over time. I, uh, 538 has done research into this, and it is absolutely true that that number, in other words, the generic number, as you go from the presidential election into the midterm election, that number for the out party, with one prominent exception, or maybe you could sort of say two, but with one prominent exception, which was 2002, that number never reverses itself in favor of the party in power. Once that number is going in the other direction, it tends only to get bigger. So if you were if you were even to say, all right, that's a wild outlier, 4333, that uh, the public wants uh, Republicans to run Congress as opposed to Democrats, uh, the largest gap ever measured in this poll or pretty much in any poll at this time, even if you say that's a wild outlier and it's half that or something like that. 
the general effect uh, would be to believe that it's December, and if it's, say, four points and not 10 points, that number's not going anywhere but up. So in 1994, I think that number got to close to 15 percentage points before the 1994 election. And I think it was seven or eight in 2010. I'm not sure both years in which there was an explosive rejection of the party in power. If this is true, we are seeing a rejection, the, uh, uh, the scale of which the shellacking or the thumping or the or the Gingrich revolution, none of them will actually be anywhere close to th this. This one is going to outdistance them all. And the reason is that number, is that seven percentage point number. Now, it, that, that stands in for a lot of things. It's about the pandemic. It's about feckless government policy. It's about the sense that no one's hand is on the tiller. Uh, you know, and all of that, it kind of combines and, and the sense that people's lives are getting worse because, of course, inflation is a regressive tax that hits everyone and hits, in fact, the people who are least among us worst. I, th I think it also will reflect what the Biden administration has done, uh, told the American people is the real story. Remember, they, they're putting out these, they told us 4th of July that, you know, you're going to save seven cents on your hot dogs. They, they, were, they constantly downplayed the inflationary spike. They put out charts that show a year, you know, remember what was the recent chart that Ron Klain retweeted? It was like, you know, the, oh, prices aren't that bad, but it showed, you know, six months or a year of time. I mean, they are actively trying to tell the American people that what they are experiencing isn't real. And that's a different thing than saying we've got this under control. Like they should acknowledge if they could acknowledge the inflationary problem and say we're working on it. That's an honest message, even if you don't trust that they know what they're doing. But to say over and over again you're getting misinformed. This isn't really as bad as everyone's saying when people see it on their grocery bill. And I know I keep coming back to this, but I have two teenage kids in the house and they eat so much food and my grocery bill is so yes. high now. It's real. Like everybody knows it's real. Real people, as you said earlier, Abe, people in the real world aren't buying that message. It's condescending. Highest inflation rate in 39 years. So what is 39 years ago? 1982 highest inflation rate in 39 years and but some as, of the numbers up you want to hear this gas up 58 percent rental car 37 percent used car 31 percent hotels 26 percent steak that's christine's favorite steak 25 percent utilities 25 percent bacon 21%, pork, 17%, furniture, 12, fish, 11, new cars, 11, chicken, nine, bikes, nine, eggs, eight, coffee, seven and a half, apples, seven, milk, seven, flour, six, rent, three and a half. And of course, we have the supply chain crisis and all that. Like, but you oh know, as my the, God, as, as the, the story in the New York Times that, that covered this this morning was frank about pointing out. Uh, some of these rises are now in sectors that have nothing to do with the supply chain. Um, uh, so they, they, they can't, you know, even be blamed on, on sort of the pandemic and, uh, and all the work stoppages and, and supply chain halts that, that, that were created. Things like housing. I mean, I mean, the point is that this is a perfect storm because the problem here is that the rate can't fall that fast. That's the, it's been building and it may well 
it may well peak and start going down. But as Goldman Sachs apparently has said in relation to this, you know, it's going to be slow. So, you know, you could go down from 7% to 5.5%. That's a big cut in the inflation rate, except 5.5% is double the inflation rate that we've seen as a general average over the last 20 years. So maybe it'll feel a little better, but it's still going to feel worse than last year. And, you know, it comes down to the whole question of whether Republicans are going to do anything to interrupt what should be their mad rush to, you know, taking as much power as they possibly can to thwart Democratic ambitions. And I'm a little I'm a little nervous about that. I'm a little skeptical that they are. Because uh, there is that lunatic at Mar-a-Lago who apparently literally cannot have a conversation that does not go back to November 2020 and the false idea that the election was stolen from him. I mean, you know, it sounds like he needs OCD medication is what it sounds like, because apparently he cannot have a conversation that isn't about November 2020. And he is going to he is making it so that his party remains consumed or a lot of people in his party are consumed with this uh, yesteryear fantasy uh, rather than focusing on how to really take advantage of the political opportunity that is before them. Latest detail is Barack Ravid, uh, Israeli journalist who has talked to Trump a lot about Netanyahu. Apparently, he just sort of like curses Netanyahu out. Why? Because Netanyahu congratulated Biden on, on winning the presidency. Biden, a guy he's known for like 50 years. He da- How dare he? How dare he? He should know better. F him. Apparently, like every conversation he's had with Barack Ravid has like featured this, this, this conversation. So, Noah. What do you think? I mean, it's like it's like they can't really ruin this if there's a gigantic rejection of the Democratic Party. But no, they can blow it in certain races. Uh, I I think generally the House vote is probably going to be much more um, reflective of the national environment. And it could be staring down the barrel of a 260 some odd majority in the for Republicans in in the House. But in the Senate side, there's and on the gubernatorial side in places like Georgia, there's there's efforts to you know impose the Trumpian worldview on on these electorates. And the, the electorates might very well respond. There's an absolute lunatic running for the Senate in Arizona um, and the Arizona uh, Republican Party has gone completely insane and they their voters might have gone completely insane. So they could blow that one. Um, in Georgia, there's uh, Herschel Walker has done a fair job of trying to sidestep this issue. But David Perdue, former senator, is challenging Brian Kemp for the governorship. And he's doing so basically on a platform that is predicated on relitigating 2020. I don't know what else he's running for. All he talks about is that. And it seems to be a referendum on 2020. And there will be a couple other races that will uh, be decided on the primary side, will be decided um, based on relitigating 2020 and who's displaying more fealty to the cause. And that'll be a hindrance to Republican prospects in the upper chamber and when it comes to state houses. But by and large, the environment is going to be such that they can't overcome it. And there'll be plenty of candidates on the more Trumpian side of the ledger who do just fine, who win their primaries, who win election uh, and will serve to ratify in the minds of people who really want 
the idea of a stolen election to become catechism, to become uh, something that Republicans have to pay uh, fealty to and obeisance toward, um, they'll have plenty of evidence to say that we won, even though there will be plenty of evidence on the other side, too. So it's not like this argument is going to be over after November 2022 as much as I would like it to be. I mean, I think you can see how the Georgia race goes. Uh, the Georgia race goes that uh, Purdue faces down Kemp and uh, either Kemp and and if Purdue wins, uh, then Warnock will probably win the election. And if Kemp wins, Stacey Warnock, Abrams is the most likely Democrat. Stacey Abrams, the most likely Democratic gubernatorial nominee. Right. <clears throat> so we're talking, that's the gubernatorial race, not the Senate race. Wait, wait, wait. No, I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, right. I'm sorry. Purdue. Right. That Stacey Abrams wins because one or the other side is um is depressed. Right. Is 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 basically uh, the 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 Trumpians will think that, you know, another election was stolen from them if if uh, if Kemp if Kemp prevails and if Purdue prevails, the the suburban the suburban non-crazy vote in in Georgia will stay home probably and let Stacey Abrams win by 25,000 votes like that's the you know and then the Her Herschel Walker case is uh you know is basically he says he has multiple personalities you know uh you know he's uh, he's been he's been char he's been tagged with multiple cases of personal abuse against against his against his uh against his loved ones um you know he's a beloved football player and apparently not a really sane person uh entirely uh and so i don't know that's a that's an easy it seems like an easy an easy way to run against somebody so you have their you know you have their the way in which this could this could go but, you that, know, could go sideways. but then there's democrats who have also convinced themselves probably smartly but annoyingly <clears throat> that because they did their best to tar, for example, Glenn Youngkin as the second coming of Trump, even though it was a terrible fit and they knew it was a terrible fit. And then they lost badly. And the postmortem analysis has been, well, we can't do that anymore. We can't, you know, we can't summon Trump into the to the battlefield and make him do the work for us. We actually have to define these candidates on their own terms, um, which is, you know, smart analysis and, you know, not blinkered analysis, at least. But if that leads them to say, well, OK, then we can't we can't argue against Trump and Trumpism at all, even when you have candidates who whose entire identity is predicated on the idea that they're avenging the wrongs that were done to Donald Trump in 2020. I mean, that that would be an overcorrection. Uh, OK, well, you know what? Let me talk about let me talk about what kind of steak and bacon you should be eating uh, right now, even though. You know, there's trouble in the steak and bacon and fish world, right? And we're talking about Moink Box, um, which delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Why are 97% of the chickens served in the U.S. dipped in chlorine? Simple, because big food doesn't have the same quality standards as the family farm. That's why you need Moinkbox.com. Sign up at Moinkbox.com slash commentary to get a year of ground beef for free and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box change what you get each month cancel anytime look their animals are raised outdoors their fish swim wild in the ocean and moink meat is free of antibiotics hormone sugar and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle 
Moink Box, founded by an eighth generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank. He guarantees you'll say, Oink, Oink, I'm just so happy I got Moink to join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now and listeners to the show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. And what about that gift for yourself at this holiday time? You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the X chair. I'm sitting in one right now. It's a gift that will actually pay for itself in terms of how much more productive you'll be at work. By far the most comfortable and ergonomic chair I've ever used. And maybe the coolest looking piece of furniture I own. Not only is X chair the world's greatest office chair, but with its patented LMX technology, it doubles as a massage chair and can either cool or warm your back. Can your office chair do that? I don't think so. Now is the perfect time to purchase an X chair. Buy early, buy now. And here's X chair's holiday gift to you. Save $100 off your X chair just by purchasing it, purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair commentary.com x chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 dollars a month go to xchaircommentary.com now and save xchaircommentary.com now do we have anything else to talk about i mean there's so much to talk about i don't even know what to talk about but i'm i feel like we're leaving something on the table that we should well, be bringing up I- I think we need to at least acknowledge Hillary Clinton's amazing masterclass where she gave the world the gift of her of her victory speech that we didn't get to hear in 2016. So I'm just throwing that out there for. Do you have to listen? Can you listen to it for free or do you have to do you have to pay ninety nine dollars or whatever? I I won't even click on the website because she did this, but I was like reading excerpts of people who had, in fact, listened to it. So it's pretty. pretty Apparently she cries in the course of delivering it. I wonder I mean, how many takes it took to get those. Tears. I watched it. You people didn't even watch it. I, I it's a minute um, long. You know what? You gotta watch it. Yeah. What a minute? Well, the, the speech, selection that's, everyone's that's talking about. That's my kind of victory speech. I want to hear a minute long. That's like what you want at the Oscars is a minute like, long. Victory. I won, suckers. <laughs> <laughs> the the clip that is making the rounds is of her breaking down as she describes her mother's journey and uh, the hardships that she faced as a very young child and then delivering this sort of out-of-body lecture to her mother um, at, you know, as the mother of a very young Hillary Clinton, like, you know, just, it, it will all pay off in the end because eventually this young woman who you can't even imagine will become president of the United States. And she is overcome um, with emotion in that moment for probably a variety of reasons, some of which are perfectly natural and understandable and even laudable, but most of it is probably just self-pity. Uh, does she also go into uh, how she met Eleanor Roosevelt at a seance? Because that, that would be, that would also have been good for that speech. I would love to hear her talk about her communing with Eleanor Roosevelt at that seance, because I, I would love to, her thoughts on all the, you know, empowerment she gives to women, unless those women happen to be involved in extramarital affairs with her husband. That's just personally what I would like to hear a masterclass in. I would love to know the wine soaked marketplace for this sort of thing. Who is buying? Who on earth finds this to be a, a worthy, entertaining use of your time? Um, other than, you know, just, you know, sinking into the morass of despair that, you know, the, that you were going through in, on, you know, election night in 2016. I, I don't want to make fun of that. I understand it. But at the same time, why would you want to relive that pain 
what benefit do you get from that? There's a psychology, there's a psychology there that I think is interesting. She's still a brand, you know, and, and it's, it's a brand that has its adherence. And I love that. I love that uh, the way she, from what you guys are describing, you know, the, 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 one of the most obnoxious things about her campaign was this idea of inevitability that, that she had this coming and, and that seems still to be a part of her, her thinking on the matter. Um, she's a, the word Clinton is a brand, right? So um, on Sunday, I was watching face the nation with Marjorie Brennan and I don't actually remember what the subject was, but she asked some Republican to confront an argument being made in a tweet by Chelsea Clinton on this national Sunday morning show newscast. Who the hell is Chelsea Clinton? Bill Clinton was president of the United States. Hillary Clinton was secretary of state and twice senator from New York. Chelsea Clinton is their useless kid. Why am I reading about Chelsea Clinton on CBS's Face the Nation? Because she's a she's a love, much beloved child's book author who they've been grooming for political office since she was probably 10. I mean, that that was always the sort of strategy. She's she's doing a lot of the stuff that someone who might one day run for office herself does. I don't know. My favorite Chelsea Clinton story is that she got a contract to work for NBC News and she was working for NBC News and somebody at NBC News called her to ask her a question. And her chief of staff, because Chelsea Clinton had a chief of staff, I think she was 25 years old at the time, chief of staff to Chelsea Clinton, returned the phone call to her colleague at NBC News and said, Chelsea Clinton does not return phone calls. Two people in the organization for, for which she works. So that, that is Chelsea Clinton. I get, look, she had a weird childhood and her parents, her, her parents had the most famous uh, extramarital crisis in, uh, you know, practically in planetary history. And if it ended up making her strange, I understand that, but she's like 40 years old now and she should shut the hell up or do something with her life. But why, why, you know, why she, is actually a person to be contended with on a major national newscast is a mark of the derangement of the liberal media and the sorts of things that it focuses on. It was an embarrassment, an embarrassment for CBS News. And we will be back with you on Monday. I have one piece of advice for you. Go see West Side Story, the new Steven Spielberg movie. It is astonishingly good that's all i can say i was very surprised i didn't expect it it is astonishingly good and with that for abe christina noah i'm john pot keep the candle burning